It's Sunday morning. Time for the great outdoors with Charlie Potter. Brought to you by the all-new Chevy Silverado and ChevyDriveChicago.com on Chicago's very own 720 WGN. Good morning. Welcome to the Great Outdoors Show. Charlie Potter, your host here on WGN Radio. As we roll through the month of July, the great summer month, getting ready for August, when we begin to realize that summer does have an end. But right now, we're in full swing in summer. And when we're in full swing in summer, occasionally our minds turn north to wondering what is going on in the Canadian prairies regarding water, as water is the lifeblood of migratory waterfowl and many migratory birds, as the IMAX film Wings Over Water is so eloquently shown. Without the prairies, we just don't have birds in North America. About 70% of North America birds depend on the prairies at one point or another during the year for their life cycle. So here's the news from the prairies. As of June 30th, so just a couple weeks ago, Canada is headed into a bad drought. Prairie Canada is, with a few exceptions, not doing very well. Of course, the fires from Canada have let you know that it's pretty dry up there. But in looking at the Canadian drought map... We note that most of Manitoba is now classified as being in severe drought. Almost all of Ontario, which is not a big duck production province, is in abnormally dry. Working your way west, the entire province nesting area of Manitoba is either in moderate drought or entering a severe drought. Saskatchewan, which is the number one waterfowl-producing province in Canada, uh, there has two pockets. Fortunately, the southern part of the pro- province, it's funny how you get pockets, but that's the way it works in Canada. On the prairies, you can get three inches of rain two miles away from a place that hasn't had rain in a month. The very southern part of the province, which is one of the heart, absolutely most important areas of, of waterfowl production, is in good shape, as is the area around Saskatoon. And which is in the center of the province, that appears to be in pretty good shape. But moving beyond that, the province is pretty dry. And you get over to Alberta, in the Midwest, there are not a lot of birds that come from Alberta, but pintail for the West Coast, Central Flyway, pintail are heavily dependent on Alberta. And Alberta looks like, well, it looks like kind of a disaster zone. The critical areas of, of Alberta, the southeastern part of the province, are either in extreme drought or they're in severe drought. There really is no area of Alberta that, unfortunately, there's no area of Alberta that has at all anything even resembling normal precipitation at this time. So uh, it looks like it's going to be a a tougher summer for late nesting birds in particular uh, than it was uh, felt to be um, just maybe a month ago. And so um, we are always hopeful, but it is certainly not great when it comes to the prairie breeding grounds of Canada. In the United States, there is much better news. The best breeding grounds in North Dakota are in super shape. The best breeding grounds in South Dakota are in super shape. All of Montana, northeastern Montana, which raises quite a few birds, both shorebirds as well as waterfowl, all of northeastern Montana is in great shape. 
So it's a bit of a mix. Alaska, which also produces a fair number of birds for waterfowl, but is really important for, for shore for shore birds and wetland-dependent birds, Alaska looks to be be excellent. So that's the report uh, as we get into the middle of July. Pretty much the nesting season is, is over. Either birds are on their nests or have already brought off broods. It would be the rare uh, species that, that initiates the nest right now. Uh, if it does, it will be because it's lost its nest. Mallards, for instance, will nest a number of times until they have a successful nest. A hen mallard, but each time she nests, she lays fewer eggs. So um, there may be some, there may be a fair number of waterfowl trying to make a last nest, a nesting attempt here. But that's about it. Uh, they won't go past this point, and with it being dry, they probably won't be very excited to to try to nest as well. On the other extreme, let's talk about water. Tulare Lake. You may recall earlier this, earlier this spring, I announced on the radio that. There it was the big, here on the Great Outdoors show that a lake had emerged in California that was once the largest freshwater lake west of the Mississippi, Tulare Lake, in the Central Valley of California, and that it was likely to grow in size. Well, it's sure grown in size. It's now 170 square miles in size. That's a pretty significant body of water. It is deeper than expected because over the past couple of decades, the ground has actually sunk in some areas because of the depletion of the underground aquifers. And believe it or not, in some places in the Central Valley of California, the water, the, the ground sea level is 9 to 12 feet lower than it was just 25 years ago. So it sinks not uniformly, but it sinks in pockets. So you have areas in what is now the Tulare Lake Basin. Well, I guess it always was the Tulare Lake Basin, but it was just dry for over 100 years, with a couple of exceptions. Uh, you have areas where the water is 20 feet deep because the ground sunk so far. So in pre-settlement times, Tulare Lake was the largest freshwater lake west of the Mississippi. It was arguably the most important lake to migratory birds west of the Mississippi, being a freshwater lake, enormous in size. Uh, it was completely drained over 100 years ago, and it is underneath the lake today is some of the richest farmland in all the world. And it's likely to stay underwater for a while. Current estimates are that it could be at least two years before Tulare Lake is returned to agricultural fields. Uh, not only is it some of the most productive farmland in America, it's also some of the most valuable. And the economic damage to agriculture is, is really profound. Not only do we see it in, in far less produce, but we see it in the fact that everything that is electrified in the Central Valley of California in the Tulare Lake Basin is, 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 not, is not working and will not work again and is being removed. So California Power and Electric, they are uh, helicoptering in crews who come down and try to remove uh, transformer boxes and all kinds of, of electrical stations that are sitting underwater. It's not only dirty work, it's dangerous work. And the feeling is that this will continue for a while. Uh, but one of the things that is definitely true about Tulare Lake is you don't want to swim in the water. Uh, as a result of having been in agriculture production for well over 100 years, there are all kinds of uh, insecticides and pesticides and chemicals that have been on the land, and that, of course, now is, is in the water. Uh, on the other extreme, you talk about Tulare Lake being flooding. 
Uh, and it, in fact, in our lifetime, it's only flooded once momentarily, and that was in the 1980s, very briefly, and it didn't flood to this extent. So it has become a, an, a tourist attraction of, of really significant scale um, in the West. And in fact, a, a news crew put a kayak in on the east side of Tulare Lake with the intent being to kayak all the way to San Francisco Bay, which, of course, is something you could have done over 100 years ago in what was one of the largest mosaic of wetlands in, uh, in all of North America. So it's a bit of a novelty. It is wrecking havoc. It's not a situation where there's a lot of there are a lot of advocates saying let's keep Tulare Lake in play, let's it's it's come back, let's restore it to its original terrain and size. That's not getting any traction because the value of the farmland is so significant and the agricultural crops that it produces are so important. But if this were in other areas of the country, it's quite possible that if something like this occurred, there would be a very strong movement to say, wait a minute, let's not drain the lake. Let's figure out a way to keep it. Don't think that's going to happen here in California. Rather, what they are doing is they are figuring out ways where to put Tulare Lake's water that it can be stored. They're creating new reservoirs. There's all kinds of talks about putting underground water tanks. Of course, you're talking about millions of gallons of water. In fact, there are still two and a half million acre feet. That's two and a half million acres. In other words, at a foot deep of snow melt still to come out of the Sierra Nevadas. And depending on the weather this summer and the rapidity of the melt, there could, there could still be significant flooding and water coming down into the Central Valley. Two and a half million acre feet of water in the middle of July is unheard of. By this point in time, there's basically, well, there's no million acres of snow. There's no snow melt basically to come down or very little. And yet here it comes potentially with two and a half million acre feet. So Tulare Lake is indeed a story that's that's present. Uh, it's become a major tourist attraction for people just wanting to see something. You can stand on the eastern shore and you can't see to the western shore. It's just, it's as it was, well, over 100 years ago. When I come back, I'm going to talk a little bit about public opinion on hunting, a new survey. you got to question it. Also, the move to take lead shot out uh, in some areas in Minnesota. And then another kind of interesting water story. On the other side of the coin, you've got Tulare Lake, which is reaching unprecedented levels. And then not that far away, you've got the Salton Sea, which is drying up and creating interesting ecological problems of its own. I'll be back in just a moment with much more on The Great Outdoors Show. I thank you for listening. This is Charlie Potter on the Outdoor Voice of America, of Chicago and America, 720 WGN. And first, a message from our longtime sponsors, the Northwest Indiana in Chicagoland, Chevrolet dealers. Hiking, camping, and hunting, it's all an adventure in the great outdoors, but nature can be tough. You need to be ready for anything and everything. Chevy Silverado is built to handle the toughest conditions and get you everywhere you want to go worry-free. Silverado's designed to handle the big jobs. It's built for the great outdoors. With over 13,000 pounds of towing capacity and trailering sway control, Silverado can haul the biggest loads on the roughest roads and keep you cool as a Sunday drive. With eight available cameras and up to 14 different views, it can spot trouble before it gets to you. That's peace of mind. And when you're ready for the backcountry, Chevy Silverado 1500 ZR2 owns the off-road. You name it, we run over it. No wonder it's Motor Trend's 2023 four-wheeler pickup truck of the year. 
So see your Chicagoland and Northwest Indiana Chevy dealer or go to ChevyDriveChicago.com and check out a Chevy Silverado. It's freedom to explore the great outdoors. It's Charlie Potter and the great outdoors on Chicago's very own 720 WGN. Welcome back to the Great Outdoors Show. Charlie Potter, your host here on WGN Radio. And as promised, I'm going to take you from Tulare Lake, a, a marvel of nature that has resurrected itself after 100 years of, of being gone, to talk quickly about something we have before. There's a new report out on the Salton Sea, which was formed by a breach in a levee in the Colorado River in, I believe, 1918. And the Salton Sea became this huge inland sea and for many years was was a destination playground for people from Southern California, but it's been in receding water levels for a long time because there's no inlet bringing water into the Salton Sea. And as a result, it is, it is going to dry up. But the Salton Sea is also one of the most polluted bodies of water, arguably in all the world, certainly in, in America. And there was a recent study about what happens as the Salton Sea dries up with the contaminants that are on the lake bed uh, it's not a pretty story, and you think of Palm Springs and Palm Desert and the beautiful, basically, the, the Palm Springs area and all the people that go there in the winter. Bad news is the Salton Sea is very toxic. As a result of it drying up, those toxins are laying exposed on the bottom of, of now dry ground, and when the wind comes up, it blows around, and when the wind comes up from the south, it blows it straight north into Palm Springs, Palm Desert, and that whole that whole area where so many of us from Chicago have certainly gone. Uh, it's getting more and more attention, as it should. The lake, is there's no way to stop the Salton Sea from drying up. It is going to go completely dry at some point, unless there were some way to put, well, years of Colorado River water in it, and that's not going to happen because the Colorado River, by the time it gets that far in California, is pretty much dry. So, on the other extreme from Tulare Lake, a lake that has been come out of nowhere because of the epic rains and snows in the Sierra Nevada, you have the Salton Sea. But both of them have something in common. Neither one of them is any good to swim in because of the, the contaminants that were in the, on the dry land of the Central Valley of California and were, have been put into the water in the Salton Sea. And so it makes you wonder about a lot of our waterways in America. So moving from the Salton Sea, how about public opinion on hunting? This is really kind of incredible. Public hunting, apparently, excuse me, hunting is not as approved as much by the American public as maybe people thought. Or maybe you just don't believe the study. I, I come from the point of view that the headline saying public approval for hunting dropped sharply. I'm not sure that's accurate. I think it's all in how you ask questions and surveys. I don't know, and the article does not talk, the survey doesn't talk about, did they use the exact same questions they used the last time they did the survey? But this new survey says that attitudes towards hunting, fishing, trapping, and recreational shooting, while they still have the support of the vast number of Americans, they have dropped precipitously over the last three years. So um, at one point in time, you wouldn't have even thought about public opinion as it came to sport shooting and hunting. It was just something that we in America did and uh, was widely supported as we have moved further and further from the land and more and more into an urbanized society and more and more into a society that that does not have any attachment to hunting. It is natural that that one would think that hunting is approval 
may not be as well understood, and I think that's true. But I, I believe sitting here in the chair at WGN Radio, as I have all these years, I think the support for hunting is very strong. What there is no tolerance for is the tolerance for poaching. And I've said many times in the air, poaching is not hunting. When they, when they announce, you know, hunters caught shooting out of season, no, those aren't hunters. Those are poachers. Those are violators. And I think one of the things that we absolutely need to do in, in our public life, in the, in the communication about the ethics of hunting and the values of hunting, the economic importance of hunting, and hunting as a wildlife management tool, is we really, really need to talk about the fact that there's a very different between, difference between sustainable and ethical hunting, sport hunting, for food and, and as it's been practiced for, for now generations in America, versus poaching, those aren't hunters. Those are outlaws, and we should not continue, really, we should not confuse the two. And I think these studies don't, don't get to that basic question of Americans, I believe, across the board support ethical and sustainable hunting, and they understand it's an important part of wildlife management. Just think where we would be for deer if we didn't have deer hunting. Uh, the number of deer would be that we have in car accidents and the disease from deer would be overwhelming us. So there's an example of where hunting is extremely important in controlling a population. But if you're poaching, that's not hunting. So the survey says not as many people support hunting. I personally, I don't believe that. I've got about a minute left, and I'm going to uh, jump on this more next week. But the Wild Salmon Center has been thrown out of Russia. The Russian government this week, well, actually, yeah, just yesterday, announced that after more than 30 years of working alongside Russian scientists, governments, and local people to protect salmon strongholds throughout Russia, the Prosecutor General's Office of the Russian Federation has named the Wild Salmon Center an undesirable organization. Think about that. Here's an organization that is doing incredible work to save wild salmon, and the Russian, organization, the Russian government thinks it's some kind of spy organization. I happen to know the leaders of the Wild Salmon Center, many of their board members. You couldn't have a better group of people trying to advocate for, for sustaining wild fish runs in the Pacific Rim. But times are different with Russia, so the Wild Salmon Center is now a, what's the wording I just used? An undesirable organization. I hope you all have a very desirable week in the great outdoors this week. Enjoy your July. I'll be back next sun Sunday morning with much more in the great outdoors. Thank you so much for listening. This is Charlie Potter on the Outdoor Voice of Chicago and America. 720 WGN.